you're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled Insights from RightsCon. The talk featured Bellingcat researchers Charlotte Godard, Logan Williams, Aganish Adabakova, and Tristan Lee. Charlotte spoke to us about her workshop at RightsCon on designing safer visual investigations at scale, her partnership with Atlas, and her wider work with volunteer researchers. Logan, Aganish, and Tristan broke down their workshop on archiving online content and previewed their auto-archiver tool. The talk was hosted by me, Charlotte Ma, on Thursday the 15th of June. Hi everybody, if you don't know me, I am Charlotte Ma. I am social media producer here at Bellingcat, and I'll be your moderator for this discussion, albeit a little late. Um, today, as you can see, we're joined by Bellingcat researchers. We're joined by Charlotte Godard, Logan Williams. Uh, we're also joined by Tristan Lee, and hopefully we can also get Aganish on here later as well. Um, everyone is here to discuss RightsCon, a large human rights conference uh, that happened in Costa Rica last week. And the conference features an array of different speakers uh, from tech companies to government representatives to human rights defenders, and with a focus particularly on human rights in a digital age. And Bellingcat were the stars of the stage. Um, we were there and all about mingling uh, with the best people. Oh, it's great, Agnesh is joined now. First up though, we're speaking to Charlotte, uh, a triple threat, an investigator, trainer, and lead of the Global Authentication Project at Bellingcat. She and our colleague, Hannah Bagdazar, hosted a workshop at RightsCon on designing safer visual investigations at scale. The talk at the conference showcased the platform Atlas and discussed data models and open source investigations. And we will be hearing about that a little bit more now. Um, just before Charlotte starts, please remember, please put all of your questions in the chat. I am going to be there in the background, capturing them all and making sure that we can ask Charlotte those questions once she's finished her little talk. Uh, welcome, Charlotte. You have the floor, so to speak. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here. So unfortunately, I was not in RightsCon in Costa Rica at RightsCon. I participated virtually, um, which I'm happy to speak on for people who have considered attending virtually or, you know, maybe decided it wasn't worth it this year or have, you know, questions on how it works. I think they do a fairly good job. I mean, considering the challenges of having a hybrid model generally, I'm able to attend and participate through breakout rooms. And I was able to uh, listen even from afar. So I really enjoyed my virtual RightsCon experience, but I'm sure Logan and Tristan will have much more to say about the actual in-person experience. Um, and yeah, so I mean, we had a session, the session that I participated in was designing safer visual investigations at scale. For those of you that have participated in the Global Authentic Authentication Project, particularly recently, you're familiar with Atlos, which is a tool that we've been using to organize both the volunteers, the researchers, and then also the data and how we go through the process of collaborating on it and then visualizing it um, at scale. So it was really interesting session. 
especially since last year we had a session on ethically crowdsourcing and working with volunteers. And this felt like a natural second, you know, like a, a natural session to follow that one where we'd actually implemented some of the things that we had discussed the last session and we were able to um, bring those into practice. I really can't take credit for most of the session that was organized by um, the two developers at Atlas, Miles and Noah. It was really great having them there as well to speak on Atlas itself and a lot of the design ideas that they had um, implementing it. And yeah, so I'll just speak really briefly for maybe five minutes about why we decided to work with a platform like Atlas and the ways that it's changed our investigations. And then I also put a link in the chat for if you are someone who wants to work on your own open source investigation, Atlas is not a tool that, you know, it's not an internal Bellingcat tool. It's not a Bellingcat only tool by any means. They are fully their own separate thing and they're hoping to gather more open source researchers and teams and have more investigations take place on their platform. So I'll put in a, um, a link in the chat for their wait list. And if you just fill out that form, they'll get back to you. Supposedly, I mean, they call it a wait list, but they said that they've been pretty quick in terms of reaching back out to people. If it's something that you're interested in exploring on your own, I've really enjoyed my experience on Atlas and I'll talk a little bit more about the features that are on it and what I'm, what I'm talking about generally right now. Okay, so if you've ever done an open source investigation, which I'm sure a lot of you have, um, you know that you work with so many links, just like tons of links, tons of data, and organizing that, I mean, I think everybody has their own method, but a common one that we were using before Atlas was just a spreadsheet. You know, maybe the date, it was uploaded, time it was uploaded, link, description, and then people would geolocate it and they would put coordinates into the spreadsheet and you'd have like, you know, a thousand rows with all these different links and um, all this different information about incidents. And that's pretty much how we were operating um, for all of our team investigations and particularly any investigations that involved volunteers um, because we could just use Google Sheets and have people collaborate in one document, leave comments. You know, there are advantages to Google Sheets in that way. But I think that we obviously ran into issues with it being cluttered, um, visually not appealing, um, pretty difficult to work with and visualize. You know, if you want to do anything with the information, you need to move all of the data into a separate platform or use a separate tool that'll visualize it for you or tell the story of what's going on. Um, you also obviously have, you know, people accidentally deleting things, people clicking on links accidentally, and then suddenly viewing graphic content. Even though we would try our best to mark graphic things in the spreadsheet, I think regardless, when you click on a link and it opens up in a new tab and it's just immediately something graphic, that is like a triggering surprise right there. Um, and so these Miles and Noah, these students at Stanford, they saw all these issues and they came up with a solution and it's called Atlas. And it's essentially a platform that allows you to upload data. And when you upload, let's say a link or you create an incident, it'll create an incident card with some kind of identification number for that incident. So whether that's, you know, it can be anything, it can be something like an airstrike or um, the kinds of conflict incidents that we tend to investigate. Uh, but it could also be like a person, you know, maybe you're investigating, um, you know, a series of events or a group of people and you want to separate out by individual and collect all of your links about this one person or alternatively about this one airstrike in a single place. 
And then the great part about it is that it's very collaborative. So similarly to um, like timelines, like if you think about a Reddit thread, people can leave comments, they can start geolocating, it can, you know, say, hey, I think it's here. And then someone can come back around and respond to that um, and either confirm or suggest a different spot. And so what you get is a lot of back and forth conversation. They also integrated a lot of features that make it much more sensitive to graphic content. So anytime something is graphic, it's marked as such in the incident. When you click on the media to view, um, it warns you again that the, incident, that the content is graphic. And then when you click through one more time, you can see the content, but everything is uploaded in grayscale as well. And then you can remove the grayscale if you'd like. Uh, and I find that you know very useful, particularly as I'm thinking about how to organize this at scale for you know lots of people who have all kinds of different backgrounds, different triggers, different um, experiences with trauma. Um, you know, we're all so different, and what causes us to you know feel uneasy or feel triggered in a certain way. So I really appreciate a lot of the time and care that they put into developing this um, so that it could be used by all kinds of different volunteers and investigators uh, at the same time. So yeah, we presented their tool. Um, we had some breakout groups at RightsCom where we discussed data models generally and you know what kinds of things that you would look to collect in a data model. I had some really interesting people in my breakout room who was like, there was this one, um, journalist, archivist, who has been archiving things for many, many years before the internet even. Um, and they were super interesting to talk to about how archiving works and, you know, their ideas of data modeling as opposed to ours are obviously quite different too. So, I mean, that's, that's what I love about RightsCon is that you get these really different conversations than what you're used to, you know, even on Discord, even in these bubbles that we're in here, um, it's just, yeah, it brings in new voices. So it was, it was very interesting to get their feedback on Atlas generally. Uh, we talked a little bit about publishing data when we think something is appropriate or ethical to publish, even if it's legal, even if it's ethical, you know, when is it serving an investigation versus not? Uh, and yeah, we spoke as well about the risk model and one of the benefits of Atlas as well is that your data can be locked. And so as an admin, you can see things that other people can't, you can decide which people among your investigators or researchers, um, has access to what data. And then, you know, with the Google sheets accidentally deleting a line, um, problem, you can lock something in Atlas once it's been completed. So once a geolocation has been completed, an incident is done, you can just lock it. And that way nobody, you know, accidentally um, changes the information or just it's a backspace. Although it's way harder to do in Atlas than in Google Sheets, which I've done like a million times, just accidentally delete a cell. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting. And I'm happy to answer any questions you might have about it. Amazing. Thank you so much, Charlotte, um, for explaining that. I know uh, Chris has kind of already answered this in the chat, but Countess asked, is Atlas open for anyone to join? Yes. Thank you, Chris. Chris sent the uh, atlas.org. Let me send you all the waitlist invitation now. Um, so this is where you can go. And then, yeah, I mean, in terms of like the information that it asks you to access, it's you know, you just have to have a username and so and an email so you can keep a lot of anonymity while using it too, which is nice. 
just while we have a little bit of time, Charlotte, maybe uh, for anybody new in the audience, you could explain a little bit about the Global Authentication Project, just so that they have a background understanding of kind of uh, where you might be using this Atlas uh, program. Yeah, so I think I'm recognizing usernames in here. So I think we have some lovely Global Authentication Project members in the audience too. Um, Feel free to shout yourselves out in the chat. But uh, the Global Authentication Project is our volunteer community at Bellingcat. So we have um, a a community of people that we are working on open source investigations with, namely looking at civilian harm in Ukraine since last February and visualizing it on the civilian harm map. So that's an example of a perfect project for the Global Authentication Project. It's a ton of data. You know, we have so many incidents and continue to have to this day so many incidents and it's just too much for the folks at Violent Academy and there's only 32 of us around then around there Um, and we all work on different projects and so when you have tons of incidents to geolocate all at once it can be difficult to do that in a timely manner especially when we want to have these things visualized as they occur or shortly thereafter Um, And so, yeah, the Global Authentication Project came as a way to integrate our community, to have help on research, um, and to do so in a way where people could communicate with each other and with researchers. And so it's not fully open to the public. It is, you have to apply to be a part of the project. And then we take people in as we have new investigations and new research for them to work on. Uh, We do have a mailing list as well though um and we are yeah hopefully opening up some new projects and uh taking on some new people shortly in the next couple months so if you join our mailing list you'll get some information about that yeah thanks sarah i'll put the mailing list in the chat too thank you charlotte thanks so much uh if anyone has any follow-up questions please feel free to ask them in the chat and we'll try and make sure that Charlotte answers them before she has to drop off but i know she's got to leave at half past uh so if possible uh, i'd love to carry on and go to logan now um next we have the bellingcat investigative tech team uh logan williams is here he's a researcher in his own right and the data science and visualization lead at bellingcat uh, he's joined by his colleagues, Tristan and Aganish. And at RiceCon, they hosted a workshop on archiving online content. In this session, they unpacked why you should archive content and how to do that, highlighting Bellingcat's own auto-archiver uh, tool uh, built by the tech team. Hopefully, we'll learn a little bit more about that as well. We can't wait to hear more about it, so go ahead. Logan, you have the mic. Thank you, Charlotte. So yeah, Charlotte uh, introduced. We went to to the RightsCon conference in Costa Rica specifically to try to talk to other folks about archiving online content, understand how other organizations deal with this problem. It's a challenge that, of course, we've dealt with a lot at Bellingcat, as I'm sure all of you have. If you work on open source research, you've definitely encountered content that's gone missing off the internet. But we really wanted to understand how, you know, human rights organizations that maybe didn't start on the internet or traditional media organizations approached the challenge and how we could 
take the tools that we've developed internally and try to make them as useful and accessible as possible for a wide variety of uh, organizations around the world. Um, it was a really interesting experience to be at RightsCon in person for this. Not the least of which was that we learned about two weeks before our workshop that we would have no AV setup at all, uh, <laughs> which was, you know, in defense of the conference, it's a great way to really take advantage of the physically in-person format to not rely on slides or looking at a computer, but to force all of the conversation to really be focused on the people that are sitting around the table. So we took that to heart and kind of organized our whole workshop around the idea of having time for people from these various organizations to come together and talk about their archiving process and their archiving methods and challenges. Um, and some of the interesting insight that we got out of that was that basically our challenges at Bellingcat and likely the challenges you've run into are everyone's challenges. Uh, there are definitely some, some unique things like a couple groups that worked in uh, very language diverse areas have some archiving challenges related to translation. But for the most part, what we learned was that people really struggle to save online content from social media, especially from Facebook. They really struggle with news websites or websites that have super dynamic user-generated content, like for instance, to try to archive specific Reddit front pages or things like that. There was lots of complaining about how often government websites change their link format. And also with government websites, how often these, uh, the information that you're trying to extract, like from a database, depends on the interconnection of lots of different pages and subpages, which can be a really real challenge to archive, especially if, you know, some of those uh, content panels are loaded via dynamic JavaScript requests or via other methods that mean you can't just save a single HTML page and have your content in perpetuity. There is also a, a common issue with many of the, the people that were discussing their archiving process was that it's difficult to choose how much content you want to archive. Uh, a lot of these research organizations start off by, you know, looking at a huge amount of content and trying to find anything that could be relevant. Uh, and to save all of that at the outset, which would kind of be my default approach as a data hoarder type, would be to create this really unwieldy archive that a lot of these organizations said we could do it, but we wouldn't actually know what to do with all of that information. We wouldn't be able to find what we were looking for. So a lot of them did a post facto archiving process where after publishing a report, they would go through all of their links and supporting citations in that report and save all of that content. But often that was already too late. And even, you know, in the time it takes to produce and publish a report, some of the, the data would be missing. Um, 
and I'll I'll leave it there with challenges for now, and maybe pass it off to to Tristan. If Tristan, do you want to speak about some of the interesting privacy considerations we learned, and kind of the the way that we developed our thoughts around privacy models uh, after talking with other organizations? Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for that. Yeah, that was one of the things that um, I think uh, I have not put much thought into, but. Essentially, when you're archiving, there's kind of a fundamental tension between uh, archiving something for yourself, uh, between archiving content that you want to be public and you want to have kind of a a publicly verifiable uh, form of it versus um, archiving something that you want to be kind of secret only for you to be able to you uh to, to be able to use so for example uh if you're working on an investigate on a uh sensitive investigation and you want to archive some content um but you don't want that to potentially tip off uh the owners of that content or maybe um, other bad actors uh that's actually very hard to do um as it currently stands um like you you, you can't just uh, archive something from a website for example on the Internet Archive so that it's uh, verifiable later, but only available to you. Um, so this is something we got a lot of interesting feedback from. Um, there were a lot of uh, organizations and people there with very different, uh, with some privacy models that were uh, just not uh, really served by existing archiving uh, methods and workflows. So we've been kind of thinking about how we can bring in some of these additional uh, privacy models into some of the tools we developed, like the auto archiver. Um, and uh, we actually uh, talked, and uh, one really nice thing is that uh, uh, one of the, um, uh, the, the, the um, Internet Archive, um, uh, Mark Graham, uh, was uh, at the, uh, event, uh, and he, uh, we talked to him about uh, some of these issues, and uh, he had some uh, very interesting uh, input on uh, some of this uh, stuff. Thanks, Tristan. Yeah, and as Tristan said, this was really useful for us to think about how we want to continue the development of some of our tools like the auto archiver. Um, and this was to some extent kind of the ulterior motive of us going to RightsCon and hosting this, uh, this session was to understand what direction to keep building this tool. And uh, for those of you that haven't yet seen the auto archiver, uh, I'll drop a link to the article that our colleague that is uh, unfortunately for us and fortunately for him still in Costa Rica this week uh, that our colleague Miguel wrote uh, last year. So the auto archiver is a tool that was really developed um, for the, the old workflow of sorts that Charlotte spoke about earlier, where we have lots of researchers collaborating in a Google Sheet. Um, and, and despite some of the obvious shortcomings of Google Sheets that Charlotte mentioned, 
There's actually a huge amount that I like about Google Sheets, especially for organizations that maybe don't have access to a tool like Atlas or for projects that are starting up so quickly that there's just no time to find a dedicated space to collaborate and you just start putting things in whatever tool you've got, which is often Google Sheets. So some of the things I like about Google Sheets are, while it's really easy to accidentally delete a cell, you can also have a revision history uh, built into the whole sheet for free that lets you recover content or trace mistakes if something was uh, accidentally added or deleted in the sheet. There's also some features like the ability to protect certain ranges from accidental edits that can be really useful. And of course, the fine-grained permissions for editing and commenting make it possible to very quickly set up a collaboration with uh, researchers from other organizations extremely easily. So for all these reasons, a lot of our projects uh, last year were uh, starting in Google Sheets. Um, and I think kind of the epitome of this was uh, around the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine, where we had a huge amount of online evidence that we wanted to collect and organize there were a number of organizations that we were collaborating with and new ones were being added on a daily basis, more or less. Uh, and it was all based on Google Sheets. So Miguel and I took this prototype tool that we had and very quickly tried to scale it up. And what this tool did was it grabbed any link that was shared in a specific column in a Google Sheet and tried to create as thorough an archive of it as possible. Um, this includes downloading whatever content is stored within it, uh, archiving the metadata if it's a social media post, generating some things that might be helpful for review later, like if it's an image or a video, a thumbnail that can be added directly to the Google Sheet, saving a hash if you want to prove that the file has not been modified later, um, and so on. And it did all of this directly in a Google Sheet. So prior to RightsCon, we wanted to make this uh, a little bit more uh, accessible to external organizations. So Miguel and I did a rewrite of parts of it so that it can run in a Docker container, if that means anything to you. It's essentially like a small virtual machine that can make it easier to install an application on a server. And we also set up a uh, Bellingcat hosted version of it that allowed external researchers to create a auto archiver sheet without having to run a server of their own. Um, that's not publicly accessible yet, but we'd like to make it so uh, in the near future so that we can see how other people might use this and to try to help other organizations with quickly archiving content, especially in situations where a lot is happening all at once. Um, and speaking of a lot happening all at once, I'd like to kind of broaden the case studies here. And maybe, Aganish, if you're still there, you could talk a little bit about how you used Google Sheets and the archiver to save stuff from your recent investigation into border conflicts between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Sounds perfect. Uh, hello, everyone. Yeah, 
as Logan has uh, mentioned, I've done an investigation into the most recent uh, Kyrgyz-Tajik conflict that happened in September last year. Uh, so uh, uh, I guess it is um, essentially uh, a little bit similar to Ukraine research in terms that uh, we need this first to collect uh, lots of photos and video materials that are scattered all from the social media. And I would use uh, Google Sheets for this, of course. And the great thing about auto-archiver is that once you put a link on it, it will archive it automatically, which is absolutely amazing because what I've seen during that conflict is that both sides, both Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, they would uh, post lots of uh, photos and videos, especially on Telegram channels. Uh, but just a few days after the conflict, which lasted only for a few days, um, Tajik, Tajik channels started deleting the material. And this is because in Tajikistan, um, uh, media, uh, like free speech is much, much more restricted. Journalists, activists, everyone who shares information uh, in general uh, can, uh, yeah, can have some consequences. There are always uh, policemen knocking on doors and etc. So the uh, yeah, photos and videos started disappearing, and since uh, um, AutoArchive was connected to the Google Sheet, it was always like perfect. It was always archiving everything. And for me, this is uh, yeah, I always say that I love AutoArchive because what I used to do before that, I, uh, when there were like dozens and dozens of images and photos, like all of those links. I would individually like download those and then upload it on Google Drive and then share a link and put it on Google Sheets. It was uh, very, like, very um, time consuming and very, very boring task. And I would miss some things and something would always get deleted. And by using AutoArchiver, uh, it allowed me to collect everything, to archive everything. And then uh, once I was sure that I've collected most of the uh, posts, photos related to the conflict, uh, these are the photos of military men uh, just going around uh, in Tajik or Kyrgyz villages. Or the majority of those were also that how the um, houses are burning, houses being destroyed, and showing uh, showing this other um, um, destruction. Bridges, schools, residential homes, and etc. And yeah, once uh, it got archived, uh, we started working on geolocating. Geolocating was uh, done by me and also GAP project. So kudos to GAP for that. And uh, we were able to geolocate, uh, I think, a hundred uh, posts. And uh, yeah, and this uh, all of that uh, research um, ended up as being an article at Bellcat uh, and um, and also a map that we have done, um, that Miguel has created, uh, that yeah, you can also find it on Bellingcat. So what we've done there, we uh, mapped out all the incidents where we've uh, seen damage to uh, any properties uh, that were backed by satellite imagery uh, and also social media posts. And yeah, uh, archiving, again, auto-archive was very, very essential uh, for this investigation. Thanks, Aganish. So after we did this kind of discussion uh, opportunity to, to learn from other organizations' challenges and methods for archiving, uh, we shared a little bit more about the case studies for how we've used uh, archiving tools internally, like you just heard from myself and Aganish. 
and then we shared uh, how other organizations could could use this auto archiver if they wanted to. It's unfortunately still a rather technically involved tool to set up. There's some requirements on having a server that can download and process large video files. There's storage space that's always an issue with any kind of local copy of social media content or streaming video, for example, which can be quite large. But we really thought that this could be a good trial balloon for how people would perceive the tool, what kinds of questions they would ask about it, and how we could learn from the processes that other organizations already have in place. We were pretty happy with how the session turned out. We had about 65 people in attendance I should also mention that it was the very last session of the entire conference uh, in the late in the afternoon on the last day, which is if you've ever attended a conference, not generally the time when you have the most energy for having an involved discussion. So uh, we were happy with that. Also, for folks that do go to conferences like this and give talks, Tristan had a, a great idea that I was very happy we did just make a restaurant reservation the evening after the conference or after the talk. And if people come up to you afterwards to start talking about something they're interested in, you know, there's never enough time after a conference like this to talk to everyone in the like 10 minute break between the next session. But maybe they're free for dinner and you can invite them to, to join your session panel and continue the conversation there, which is what we did. And uh, yeah, we're, Happy to be joined by uh, a couple people, including Mark, like Tristan mentioned, from the Internet Archive. Um, and it was a fantastically collaborative way to, to end our experience there. So that's the hot tip that I learned about how to have better connections at conferences. So thanks again to Tristan for that. And I think that about sums up uh, our panel and our experience in general. I don't know, Tristan or Agnish, do you have anything else you'd like to add? If not, maybe we can take some questions. Uh, just to say that I got that tip um, from someone at a, co at a conference. So uh, you, never, <laughs> uh, you never know what you're going to get from uh, conference attendees. I'm just going to add that I really loved how discussion-based our session was and that we, very, again, variated from doing like a workshop, typical business slides, into more discussion-based. And I think that went great, and I would definitely would like to integrate it more into our general like, workshops. Thanks so much, uh, Logan, Tristan, Agnish, for breaking your sessions down and giving us some great tips, not only for archiving, but also for conferences, uh, which is really useful. Um, let's go to some questions now. Subtle Knife. Uh, has asked, what was the biggest insight from others you gained, either through them sharing their ideas or resulting from a question? Have you got new ideas, changes, or add-ons? Yeah, I can start. And Tristan and Aganesh, feel free to jump in as well if something else occurs to you. I think the biggest insight was around the privacy models that Tristan was discussing. Um, it was something where people had clearly a lot of kind of confusion and uh, in some cases a kind of mistrust. Mistrust in the sense that if they used a certain tool to archive a certain website, they weren't sure if it was going to become public or how public it was going to be. Um, and if it was a sensitive 
topic, like, you know, a post from a, a, a source or a victim of a human rights issue, uh, they'd err on the side of caution and not use an archiving tool at all for that. So I think learning that we need kind of clear explanation of privacy models uh, for these archiving tools was the biggest uh, kind of conclusion I came to afterwards. And for our archiving tool itself, we decided that we're going to try to include a little bit more about how people can set up um, certain levels of privacy within the tool because it does support that, but it's not currently documented as I want to make my content totally public. I want to make my content public within my organization, but private externally. I want to make my content password protected. I want to make my content so that only I can see it. And I think laying all this out explicitly and having instructions for it would clearly be useful to folks. Is there, is there any particular privacy considerations you have, to you have to take anyway when archiving? Is there anything in particular you have to take in consideration when archiving other people's content? Uh, Tristan, maybe you can speak to that as well as adding on. Yes. Yeah, so um, like for me, uh, one, one person came, uh, at the uh, workshop came up to me and was asking some questions about, for example, um, if they had like uh, the, the feasibility of taking down content that had been archived because that's a potentially serious problem. You know, if you get doxxed and, um, uh, you know, the social media post of your docs gets archived and that's potentially there forever, even if, you know, that account gets deleted. And this raises some, I think, pretty difficult questions for uh, platforms like the Internet Archive. And they, uh, they do their best to address these. So, for example, uh, um, if you try to archive a link to any, to any uh, Kiwi Farms URL, Kiwi Farms is like a notorious um, kind of bullying, doxing website, um, uh, Wayback Machine uh, uh, automatically uh, prevent, uh, disables uh, any links from Kiwi Farms to be archived. So that was something that admittedly I haven't thought much about, um, but uh, I know uh, there have been issues with uh, Bellingcat uh, geolocations. So for example, there, uh, there might be a video of um, some civilian harm incident um, in a conflict zone. And maybe the vantage point um, at which the um, viewer took the video could be a very fine uh, grand, uh, geolocated to a fine detail. So for example, okay, I know they were from this angle and probably from the third floor and uh, that's potentially very dangerous for the person who uh, recorded that video. So there are a lot of uh, ethical issues when it comes to archiving and um, these kinds, these kinds of analysis that are um, that can be difficult to find compromises for intern because it's always a compromise between uh, privacy on one hand and transparency on the other. Thanks for that. P asks: Traditional archives focus on archiving unpublished material for researchers, but are there any niche cases where open source researchers need to archive officially published material in fear of it getting destroyed? This is more of a question related to trimming down the fat of what shouldn't be put in archives. Does anyone want to answer that? Yeah, I think, 
even things that are officially published, we wouldn't necessarily trust that's going to stay online forever. Um, I mean, even, you know, relatively trustworthy governments that aren't going to like retroactively censor a report they've published or something like that, the URL to that report could change. The URLs within that could change and the content might not be accessible later. So I, I'd say that especially uh, institutional publications, um, we would archive even if it was officially published in a way where it wasn't likely to be destroyed maliciously. P also asked, do you cooperate with other big public archives outside of Internet Archives? So is there any other public, big public archives that you would kind of give a shout out to? There are tools that we use, but there aren't really any kind of databases or archives that we uh, collaborate with super directly. Uh, one that I'd give a shout out to that I know Tristan knows is SMAT, the uh, social media analysis toolkit, is that right? Uh, which archives a huge amount of especially uh, extremist or underground social media content and is a resource for researchers that want to look at trends in that content. Amazing. Interesting. you use SMAT in your research? Uh, uh, yes, and uh, I, uh, the main person uh, behind who started SMAT, Emmy uh, Bavenzi, is a previous Bellingcat contributor, um, and uh, I knew her before I actually started at Bellingcat. Um, so yeah, it's a great resource, um, really well developed, and uh, covers a lot of interesting use cases and ground. Amazing. Uh, Jimmy asks, can you send information to the auto archiver tool via text if necessary? Not yet, but that's not a bad idea. And we've played around a little bit with doing like telegram bots or that kind of thing for collecting information as well. One, one difficulty when we want to try to kind of collect information, especially from non-researchers, is if we are inviting people specifically to send us photos or videos from a conflict area to a particular uh, telegram bot, for instance, that we've set up, that gives us a level of responsibility for those sources that as an institution, we don't have a huge amount of experience uh, dealing with responsibly. Because if we're just finding things that have already been posted on the internet, that's very different from actively soliciting uh, tips and contributions from people on the ground. So I think you know there are of course ways to do this ethically and to broaden the scope of information that we have but it's uh, slightly more involved for some of those ethical reasons. And just as we're talking about the tool itself, is there any other things that you would like to add to the tool uh, in the future or any ways that you'd like to expand it further that you might be able to talk about? I'm sure Tristan and Aganishi have your ideas as well, so... Uh, 
don't let me hog the microphone. But I think the biggest one for me would be robustly archiving Facebook content. Facebook is just such a thorn in the side of anyone trying to, to scrape or save online posts. And there's no, there's not going to be any silver bullet for it, but I think there's some ways that we could expand what we're doing in the auto archiver. Yeah, and for me, I think um, a big issue and something that we have uh, uh, identified in, uh, previously in Bellingcat and something that uh, we've been working towards here is uh, making uh, is trying is really trying to improve the accessibility on all levels, like on uh, in terms of both uh, researchers using it and in terms of like uh, the tool being set up um, for a given organization. And uh, as Logan mentioned, um, they've been uh, uh, prototyping some. Uh, ways to make it uh, easier for uh, institutions to spin up their own instance of this. Um, but um, we have consistently seen that um, accessibility um, and config, uh, especially related to configuring uh, fairly complicated software uh, packages and stacks um, can be a big hurdle to people actually using these tools. Aganish, anything you wanted to add there before I ask the next question? Nothing besides what I wanted to mention. Amazing. Um, Sarah asked, did you go to any other sessions at RightsCon that you thought were cool? Uh, she was able to attend a few sessions and had a good experience, but is interested in what you enjoyed at the conference itself. I can talk quick about one that I thought was really interesting. Um, this was a uh, Blackfoot uh, advocate um, from a, a Native American reservation in the United States. And for people that aren't from the United States, uh, Native nations on reservation land have sovereignty over their natural resources. Legally, in practice, it can be quite difficult. Uh, and she was talking about her efforts to try to recognize electromagnetic spectrum space as a natural resource that Native nations could have sovereignty over. Uh, currently, that uh, electromagnetic spectrum is auctioned off by the U.S. government and sold to cell phone companies, radio companies, etc. But giving indigenous sovereignty over the spectrum would instead allow Native nations to uh, run better services or provide better cell phone connectivity for their inhabitants than these big companies are doing already, as well as potentially being an income source. So I thought that was a really interesting uh, interpretation of Native sovereignty in a way that I hadn't thought of before. I can go next. Uh, one of, uh, I think, my favorite uh, session that I went to was this uh, roundtable for this uh, uh, NGO, uh, research NGO uh, in Mexico. And they were using uh, various geospatial uh, data sources to um, try to identify possible regions um, that would have uh, mass graves. Um, so in uh, Mexico, there's a large problem with people being disappeared and um, being uh, secret, uh, clandestinely buried. Um, and this was an attempt. And then there are regular, I guess, patrols, uh, searches to try to find these uh, mass graves, especially from, a victim, from the family members of victims of the disappeared. 
And so this was, I think, a really interesting way of addressing, um, of trying to uh, filter down and kind of down select the potential regions that these people would need to manually search. Um, and I thought that this had a lot of really, I thought, I thought this had uh, one of the great characteristics of kind of good open source research where like kind of each step is fairly straightforward, but when you combine them, it ends up being like really, really cool and um, kind of greater than the sum of its parts. So yeah, um, highly recommend that. I've liked a lot of sessions at Finescon, but uh, yeah, one of the best for me was um, uh, by uh, a Turkish journalist. He did an analysis on the Turkish elections that happened quite recently. And they basically scraped like a Google Trends and Google News trendings in uh, Turkey and found out that um, like even though, um, like, yeah, they found out that even though, for example, the uh, oppositioner in Turkey, I forgot his name, even though he, uh, like Google searches um, were, uh, for this guy, the Google searches were much bigger in numbers than for uh, Erdogan, Google News still favorite uh, Erdogan uh, news uh, news about Erdogan, like pro Erdogan uh, news publications in this uh, Google News section, and they've also found out that um, that God, Google would uh, promote more uh, pro governmental uh, news uh, outlets rather than independent, and uh, uh, yeah, and lots of other analysis uh, that I can't remember. And uh, they did this uh, cool dashboard where you could do lots of research by keywords, by sentiment, again, uh, about Erdogan and their position. Uh, the GitHub, uh, yeah, their code is not uh, public, but they are open for collaborations. So I will be reaching out to them to analyze other uh, future elections in Central Asia. Amazing. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into those amazing talks as well. Um, thank you so much, tech team. I'm actually going to wrap it there. But thank you so much for sharing your feedback and for giving uh, some amazing breakdowns of the tools that you had spoken about. Can't wait to check them out myself and use them every day. If you want to check out um, the investigative tech teams um, projects you can on the Bellingcat GitHub. And thank you so much for tuning in today and for dealing with all of the tech issues uh, throughout the talk. Really appreciate everyone's patience today. And I will end the podcast there. Thank you so much to Tristan, Logan, and Aganish, and Charlotte from earlier for joining. And this has been the Discord stage talk. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound.